If you would, please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Proverbs in chapter 1. We're continuing our study on the fear of God uh, this summer, these next five weeks or so. Um, I'll be out for the next two weeks. I'm speaking at a Worldview conference this week, speaking eight times on the fear of God, and also five times on the fear of God, and three times on cameos of mercy, Christ's ministry to the leper and the cripple and the taxman, and to value your prayers as I go and speak to young um, high school students and college students, that God would bless those, these messages. And this is kind of a, co- a condensed version of some of those talks, and so um, you're being my guinea pigs this morning. In Proverbs 1, and so we saw last week in Ecclesiastes that the fear of the Lord is the duty of all men. It's also the answer to all of the conundrums of life, the meaninglessness of life under heaven and above the grave, all of the difficulties of living in a world where everything seems vain and nothing seems certain except death and taxes, and uh, making sense of it all. And we saw the young Solomon as he departs from God in the majority of Ecclesiastes, and the older, wiser Solomon, I believe, at the beginning and the end, bringing it back to a conclusion. Everything is not vain. If we begin with God, there is meaning and there is purpose to the world. The world will end in final judgment, and therefore the duty of man is to fear God and keep His commandments, for God will bring every act into judgment, even every single thought and intention of the hearts of men. And this morning, we're going to see the fear of God as the beginning of all reason or the beginning of all knowledge. And we're going to look here in the first seven verses of Proverbs. So please listen carefully. This is the Word of God. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to know understand words, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth that the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So, the book of Proverbs is given in order that you might have wisdom. Wisdom is about living life skillfully for the glory of God. And to have wisdom, you have to have knowledge. You have to know a thing or two, to do a thing or two. Well, and to have knowledge, Solomon says, you've got to have God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Most people misquote that verse. If you ask people to quote the Proverbs 1 verse 7, they'll often begin and say, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Solomon does say that later on, more than once in the book of Proverbs. But here he begins at a deeper foundation. To have wisdom, you've got to have knowledge, and to have knowledge, you've got to have God. If you're going to to know anything for certain, Solomon says, you've got to begin with the fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh. The fear of Yahweh, you remember, is a, is a life attitude, a soul that's gripped with a vision of the glory of 
God, His greatness above us, His goodness and grace around us and in us, His hand beneath us, His Word before us, His glory as the beacon on ahead of us, marshalling all of our thoughts, all of our affections, all of our choices in a wise direction as we live life skillfully for His glory. You've got to fear God if you're going to have any true knowledge. We'll look at that in a second. The problem, of course, Solomon says, is that fools, the Hebrew word evil or evil or evil, depending how you pronounce it, um, is that evil habit, pun intended, of mind of a young lad, naive idiot who doesn't fear God. It's not an IQ problem. It's a spiritual, it's a soul problem. He's a spiritual dolt, a person who doesn't connect the dots from creation to creator, who begins all of this thinking with himself, what's in it for me, rather than what glory is there in it for God. And so the fool, Solomon says, this man who does not fear God, he despises, he discounts, he rejects, he treats as worthless wisdom and instruction. The word instruction carries with it a fatherly discipline, a father's role to instruct and to correct and to reprove and to discipline his sons, which is why Solomon begins in these first ten chapters or so, before he gets into the nitty-gritty life application proverb that we all know and love, he starts here at the beginning with, if you're going to be a wise man, you must learn to listen to the voice of wisdom, and the voice of wisdom by and large is found from the mouth of your father and the mouth of your mother. And if you ignore those, you'll never end up in a wise place. You may well end up in the grave and beyond that in hell. And so these voices of wisdom come through the father, through the mother, through the woman of wisdom, contrasted with the young fools who tell the young man what he wants to hear, and the woman of folly who offers the young man a good time in bed. And that's the contrast. If you want to be wise, you must listen to the voice of wisdom. And of course, the problem is to listen to the voice of wisdom is itself an act of wisdom. And so, wisdom is one of those things in life that you have to have in order to get. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. But if you haven't got it, you're in trouble because you'll not want to get it because you're a fool. If you don't want to get it, it's very hard to end up actually getting it unless some extraordinary mercy interrupts your folly and replaces it with an understanding mind. It's hard to see what you don't want to see, is the lesson of the book of Proverbs. To him who has, more will be given. He who does not have, even what he does have, will be taken away. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. What Solomon is saying here is that if you don't begin with God, you can't know anything for sure. Everything in your life will start to unravel. Everything and everyone will be the wrong size and the wrong shape. If you don't begin with God, if you don't know who God is, then eventually you'll not even know who you are, and life will become a meaningless quest for the next good time, but each next good time will become less and less fulfilling along the way. 
which, of course, diagnoses our culture perfectly, doesn't it? How do we get to a place where boys and girls lose even the last certainty of their gender? How do we get to a place where what do you want to be when you grow up isn't a question asking about the profession the child wants to do, and it becomes the dissolving quest for the gender they want to express. How do we get to that place? How do we get to a place where a young lad, 18 years of age, thought it was a good idea to go into a junior grade school and kill child after child after child after child and two of their teachers? How did we get to a place where a young lad would think that was the next best thing to do in his life? And the answer is, it's the fruit of a culture lost in the darkness without the fear of God. That's where you end up. If you don't begin with the fear of God, you'll never end up with knowledge. If you don't end up with knowledge, you won't end up with wisdom. And if you don't end up with wisdom, you'll be a fool. And fools do what folly is. That's the lesson of our culture. I want you just to follow that with me a second. That's a bit of a leap, okay? And you've probably heard some of this before, but it's good, I think, to hear all of it together. We see a culture today, don't we, that has lost a sense of certainty. What can I know for sure? Right? And to know something, to to know anything for sure, you have to know at least one thing for sure. And Solomon says the only thing you can know for sure is God. God is there. God is, therefore I am. That's certainty. And there is a solid place on which to put both of your feet and to start out on life. But if you don't begin with God, if you don't put your feet, your feet of reason on God, where are you going to put them? What are you going to trust? You will, as I said before, end up standing with both feet firmly planted in midair. Your your whole life will be like Werner Heinsberg's uncertainty principle. You know that physicist who had the insight about subatomic particles, that you can either know, like an electron orbiting um, an atom, right? You can know the electron's position, or you can know its speed, but you can't know both at the same time. And the more you know about its speed, the less certain you can be about its position. And the more you know about its position, the less certain you can be about its speed, and you're left not knowing what to trust. And in one sense, that's, that's the lesson, isn't it, of the last five or six or thousand years of human philosophy, as human beings turn away from God, they turn away from the light, and they end up into the darkness. And there is no, there's no firm place on which to put your feet. 
If you try to be an objective learner, what can I know for certain apart from God? Let's pretend God doesn't exist. What can I know for certain? Well, the problem is what you're on this quest to know anything for certain. You've got to know everything or know someone who knows everything. And if you don't know everything, then the things you don't know might discount the things you do know. Okay? Well, then maybe I'll try the other side of the pulpit and, and try and doubt things, like Descartes. What can I doubt? And you, maybe you say, I can know nothing for sure. But then can you be sure of that, that you know nothing for sure? Should you even doubt your doubting? Even Descartes missed that point. He's assuming I am before he says, therefore I am. I think, therefore I am. He's assuming I, which is the very thing he's trying to prove in the first place. Circular logic. And so you're left with a big Heinsberg uncertainty. There is no certainty without God. And so even though Descartes and 400 years of, of mathematical and scientific endeavor launched out with this great hope of technological progress and in industry, and it seemed to be doing so well as we, we move on and, and make bigger and better things and smaller and faster computers, but we get to a place now where philosophers are telling us nothing is really true, relativism. I can be absolutely certain that I can be absolutely certain about nothing, which is the kind of stupidity that takes hundreds of years of thinking to learn. <laughs> but it's the, it's the reigning intellectual world and life view in our universities. I can be absolutely certain that I can be absolutely certain about nothing, or truly there is no truth. Absolutely there are no absolutes. And then from that craziness, you end up going from relativism to pluralism. Nothing is really true. Everyone is really right. No one is really wrong. Pluralism, multiculturalism, pluralism, we're all going up the same mountain different ways, but every path is equally valid because there's no truth, no standard voice to judge anything. And therefore, we should never judge anyone. All cultures are equally to be celebrated, the cannibal and the capitalist though very few people celebrate the capitalists today. But you do find some people celebrating the glories of cannibalist culture and the little shrunken heads and how pretty the, the art is. But still, it's, it's the madness. Once you lose truth, once you lose a foundation for everything, you can be certain of nothing. Even reason. You know, if you don't trust God, that's where Descartes and all of the rationalists went. We're not going to begin with… Let's begin with man, man's reason, Right? But you've got the problem, if there's no God in the universe, then the universe is ultimately irrational. It's just a random collocation of atoms produced by an explosion. Who knows why or where it's going, but it exploded. And then how did you go from an irrational universe to rational thought? That's a huge problem. The universe is just a dark, random chaos and formlessness, the pagan thinks, or the atheist thinks. And so, you say, that's true. If, if, if the universe is just chaos, matter in motion, then how can matter in motion produce reason, thought that's anything more than matter in motion? Or as one atheist said, we're just mud that thinks. 
Like if the, the basis of our thinking is just random chemical reactions and electrical flashes across the brain and brain fizz, serotonin, noradrenaline, adrenaline, sodium and potassium flowing into cells in your brain, how can that produce reason, thought that would itself be rational? Is there a reason for your reason, I'm asking this morning? If you don't begin with a mind behind the universe, I'm telling you it's very difficult to come up with a mind that's worth anything at all in the universe. And so we see a culture that doesn't begin with God and ends up with no certainty. If you have no certainty and no rationality, if your mind doesn't connect to the real nature of things in the universe, and the universe doesn't really reflect your mind, then, and there's no God behind it all, then how do we come up with any sense of morality, the loss of certainty, and then the loss of morality if you don't begin with God? How can you know right and wrong if you can't know absolute truth? In the old world, men believed that goodness equals what God wanted. But in the brave new world, goodness equals what does man want? Homo mensura, man is the measure of everything, which in a random universe is little more than saying man is the measure of nothing where nobody's living in a nowhere world, doing nothing of any real significance, just treading time, waiting for the sun to go supernova. Well, if man is the measure, which man? Putin or Zelensky? Or Biden? Which, which, which man is going to measure? And there's been lots of different political thoughts about that. You've got the monarchy, the one man, the strong man. And then you've got the aristocracy or the oligarchy or the, or the, the um, meritocracy. The few men, the best of men, maybe they should make the decision. They should be the measure. Or maybe you broaden the circle out and you say, democracy, the mob, all men, let all men decide. But again, if you've lost certainty and rationality, how can all these men come up with morality, and does it really matter? By what st- if there's no standard above man, by what standard can we judge the morals of men? All you've got is goodness is what I want today, and if it changes tomorrow, then goodness equals what comes next. But there's no standard to mark the progress. It's like Yogi Berra, that great philosopher and basketball player, when his wife said, we're lost. And she goes, perhaps, he said, but we're making great time. If there's no God, there's no judge. If there's no judge, there's no good or evil. There's no test at the end. Then what does it matter? On the wall in our living room, there's a dead mosquito. I know it's there because I squashed it two weeks ago. I keep meaning to wipe it off. 
But is that any more meaningful if there's no God than the carcasses of those dead children in Uvalde, Texas? So you go from the no certainty, no rationality, no morality, and you begin to have no identity as a human being. What are we as human beings? I think, therefore, I am, Rene Descartes, becomes really, I am whatever I think. I was looking this week for a, uh, an essay by um, C.S. Lewis. I have, a, I have 105 of his essays on Audible. The problem is there's no um, index, which is a problem with Audible because you can't find the essay. But eventually, I couldn't find the essay I was looking for, actually, but I did find another essay called The Empty Universe. It's an amazing essay. It's 11 minutes long in Audible. It's incredible. And he basically says in that essay, the same process by which we have emptied the universe of any ultimate significance has also led to us emptying ourselves of ultimate significance. Let me summarize it, okay? So basically, he, what he says is, go back to pre-modern man before he began the process of enlightenment, or as one man put it, darkenment, right? And you have man, and he's turned away from God, so he, 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 he's, not, he's, not, he's not measuring himself and everything by God, but he has the instinct that there's more to life than what you see. There's more to the universe than what you can get your hands on, what you can touch and taste and feel and measure and weigh. That instinct is inherent to human beings. So he's turned away from God, but that instinct is there. There's, there's a, the, the universe, you might say, is alive with personality. And so what happens is men look and they see things like trees, old trees that have been there for centuries. You look at an old tree that's been standing for centuries, and you look at it, and by instinct, human beings personify it. We see it as a, as a, a nymph or a, a living being with a mind. A dryad, that was the term, the the mythical idea that trees are not just alive, but they have a mind, and they watch. You walk past the old trees and think, if this tree could talk, what stories would it tell, right? And so, the, 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 the pre-modern mind's alive with wonderment, Chesterton would say. And we see elves and pixies and a pantheon of gods and spiritual beings, behind the, the physical world. And of course, that's a myth, but there are echoes of the truth in the myth, which is always the case, right? But then the modern man, he comes along, and by a process of atomization, he begins slicing up the tree. And he sees it's not really conscious. It's a tree. It's, it's cells. It's branches. It's twigs. It's leaves. It's photosynthesis on a big scale, and that we cut up the tree, and there's nothing really personal there. And we begin that process as well. We, we cut up the clouds and see the water cycle. And because we think we know how God does something, we therefore can safely conclude we think that God wasn't the one who did it. 
And so we demythologize, we demystify the whole cosmos and become very proud of ourselves, Lewis says, as we do. We're a bit, little bit like the man who cut up the golden goose to see how it produced the golden eggs and found there was nothing on the inside but guts and blood. And Lewis says, and by the same process that emptied the universe of personality, we've emptied ourselves of personality too. We atomize. What are we? We're just cells. We're neurons. We're brains. A central nervous system, electrical activity, chemical reactions, sodium and potassium moving in and out of the cell. And by the same process, Lewis says, and this is great, at the end of such a process, we come to the conclusion that man has no real insides except the kind you find when you cut him open. It's brilliant. No spirit, no soul, no, no being behind the human person. Just the kind of insides you find when you cut him open, his guts. And we lose our identity. Because you see, if you don't know who God is, you're going to have a jolly hard job coming up with any kind of coherent idea of who you are. And so you don't begin with God. There's no knowledge, no knowledge of certainty, no knowledge of rationality, of morality, no knowledge of, ident of identity. And then suddenly you've, you've lost yourself. Who am I? I think, therefore I am. I am whatever I think. And then you lose any concept of human dignity. Why do you matter? If you just matter in motion, what do you matter? Why do you matter? If you don't begin with God, and from that the sure and certain knowledge that I am made in the image of God, therefore I'm made by God to be like God and to be with God, to image God, then you're just left with a random collocation of atoms and a meaningless identity. And we tell our children, you can be whatever you want to be, but why does it matter if we're just mud that thinks? Our fathers would say, be who you are. Go forth and image God, glorify God, enjoy God. We tell our children, be whatever you want to be. And so, is there any surprise that that unnameable idiot believing that philosophy would go into a school and he would do whatever he wanted to do and be whatever he wanted to be? But what do you do whenever that becomes a murderer of little children? And by what standard will you condemn him if you don't begin with a God who is holy and righteous and just and true? So, if you don't begin with God, there's no knowledge of certainty, rationality, morality, identity, human dignity, then can there be any real knowledge of liberty? If there's no soul, if there's no ghost driving the machine of your personality, if you're just mud that thinks, how can you explain your choices? It's not just the dancing of genes, the fizzing of chemicals. 
And philosophers now more and more and more find themselves trapped in the bondage of biochemical determinism. We are just our chemicals. So it was the drugs that did the crime, or the alcohol, or the environmental upbringing that made this young man a tortured soul, tortured mud that has been trained to think the wrong way. No real liberty, and therefore no real responsibility. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who's so much of a founding thinker of our political establishment, he made the statement once that man is born free, but everywhere is in chains. That sounds really good, doesn't it? Man is born free, but is everywhere in chains. But you see, you and I would read that and see those chains as being on the inside of us, our nature chaining us to a godless depravity. But Jack Rousseau saw those chains outside of us imposed by society. He had this vision of a noble savage that to be really free, you've got to get back to nature, the romantic idea of getting back to nature and just, you know, being one with Mother Earth, you know, doing your yoga, umming in the, on the beach, connecting with the seagulls and any other life forms around you that are also mudded things, kind of dissolving yourself back into the um. He didn't quite think that, that advanced, you understand, but that was his mindset. If you get back to nature away from society, um, man would be a noble savage. But it's a fantasy world. Yes, our thoughts, our affections, our choices are influenced by the outside. But what is on the outside isn't our real problem. The real problem for you and I is what's in the inside that bends us toward the dark side. And so we have modern man. Jacques Rousseau was right. We're a noble savage. Noble, we can put men on the moon and surround our, our planet with satellites that give us internet everywhere. We can build electrical cars that go almost forever, or it seems that way, and $12 of electrical activity, which comes from somewhere else, of course. You've got to find a way of making that electricity, and wind power is not going to take you very far, but nonetheless. But, you know, we're such a genius. We can do all these things, but we can't keep our marriages together. We can't raise our children to be wholesome, and there's, a, there's an unraveling in our culture. What's gone wrong with us? We turned away from God. And I want to speak to you now about the voice of wisdom calling us back. Turn with me as we close out this sermon from John 8, as Jesus speaks to us. Verse 12, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the life of life, the light of life. There's the contrast. There is darkness because there's light. 
and men are lost in the darkness. We've turned away from God. We've turned out the lights, and the light is pursuing us. Christ says, I am the light of the world. There is a person behind the universe. Our pre-modern man was right. We just identified the wrong person. It's not the trees. It's not the elves and the pixies and the goblins and the, the, the ghouls that we can't see. It's the God we can't see behind the universe. There is more here than we can touch and get our hands on. And his, this universe is alive with His glory. He is a, a God of light, and His Son has come and said, I am the light of the world. Follow me. And you'll not be in the darkness of uncertainty. You'll be in the, darkness, you'll be in the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. What they're saying is, you're doing a circular logic, um, Jesus. You say, I am true, therefore my words are true because I am true. It's a circular logic. And that's what the atheists will always say to you. Oh, you're a circle logic. The Bible is true because the Bible is true. Therefore, the Bible is true. It's circular logic. What they forget or deliberately suppress is that's the way ultimate arguments always work. Like the rationalist who says, I begin, I prefer to begin with, with science. All useful knowledge must be scientifically verifiable. Oh, really? How do you scientifically verify that all useful knowledge is scientifically verifiable? Well, I, 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 I know that the world, I can see it, I can touch it, I can taste it, I can measure it. That's real. But how do you know that there's not a world behind this world that you can't see, touch, taste, and feel, and know? That human beings throughout all the centuries have instinctively believed that such a world was there because it is there. Well, I don't believe that world because I can't see it, or touch it, or taste it, or smell it. That's the whole point, you idiot. You have to assume that everything that's real can be measured and weighed and observed. And the only way you can say that the invisible world doesn't exist is by assuming it doesn't exist, which is circular logic. Or more simply put, why do you trust your brain? And before you open your mouth to tell me, you can't use your brain to tell me why you trust your brain. And you're stuck. We all have circular logic. The humanist just has a very small circle that begins and ends with man. The Bible has a circle that begins and ends with a man who was also God. Jesus says, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going but you do not know where I came from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. What he's saying is, by myself, as a, as a, as a, 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 in my human nature on earth, I don't, uh, that's not the source of my judgment. Yet even if I do judge, and judge he does, John 5, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. The ultimate circular logic is God, who is both one and many, and so the circle has reason and rationality and personality, and more than one, a Father, a Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
which is where our yearning for e pluribus unum comes from in the first place. All of the philosophical thought the world's ever had has been that wrestling. How do you go from one to many and many to one? And the reason why we have that idea of e pluribus unum is because ultimate reality is e pluribus unum, out of many, one. And so Christ is saying, the circular logic of God is a circle whose circumference is everywhere, or whose center is everywhere, and whose circumference is nowhere, or everywhere. Limitless logic, reason. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. That's reason, alive, logic on fire. It's what Jordan Peterson said. He's grouping his way toward truth as he, he made this comment. It's on YouTube. He says, we have, this, the, they have the objective world and the narrative world. The objective world is like, this is made of wood, and the ground is hard. I punch it, it hurts. That's the, that's the objective world. But we don't just live in the objective world. We also live in the narrative world of, of purpose and meaning and right and wrong. And human beings all across this world, we, 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 be, we behave as if the narrative world is as real as the objective world. And he said, only in Christ does the narrative world and the objective world coalesce. And he said, this is, this is an agnostic speaking at this point, he says, the weird thing is I actually believe that. Only in Christ does the narrative world and the objective world collide. But he said, that's a terrifying prospect. I don't know what would become of a person if they really believe that. And that's what I'm calling you today to, to do. There's a deep logic, a deep certainty in your heart that the objective world is real. But the narrative world of meaning, purpose, and ethics that you ought to behave a certain way as human beings are the only creatures who blush and know that they ought to. C.S. Lewis said, this narrative world and the objective world are both real. And they're both real because there's a God who's writing the story of the narrative world in letters written in the sky that only the wise can see. The Jews then said to Jesus, where is your father? Jesus answered, you neither know my father nor me. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So here's Christ, the light, coming into the dark world, a world dark, with darkened minds. They don't know God. They don't know Christ. And so they don't know anything. The ditty I've quoted before, but we're like blind men in a dark room looking for black cats that aren't really there. And we turn away from God and try and find meaning and purpose elsewhere. And then Christ says, not only is your mind dark, but your future is dark. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. 
where I am going, you cannot come. Dark future. Later in verse 31, Jesus says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. With dark minds, Christ says, with a dark future, because you are dark people. Whoever practices sin is a slave of sin. We're, we're trapped. We're, we're, we're lost in a world of intellectual and spiritual darkness because we have locked ourselves into a man-is-a-measure mindset, which is a cage that we lock from the inside, and we're enslaved to it. And we can't see because we won't see, and because we won't see, we can't see, and therefore we're lost in the darkness. Not only do we have dark minds and a dark future if you you will die in your sin, and we're dark characters, dark people enslaved to sin. We're members of a dark family. Later, Jesus says, Whenever the Jews said, if we are Abraham's children, we have never been enslaved to anyone. Like if you read the book of Exodus, but Jesus says, Abraham is your father. They said, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. There was a dig virgin birth indeed. (laughs) They're saying, we have one Father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your Father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but He who sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your Father, the devil, and your will is to do your Father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Why did that lad go into Uvalde and kill all those children? Because he had a dark mind. He's headed for a dark future because he's a dark person and a member of a dark family. His spiritual lineage does not reside in heaven. He's not a child of God. His spiritual lineage resides in hell. He's a child of the devil. And that's all of our natures. And Christ says, how do I know you're not a child of God? You can't bear to hear my truth. It's amazing. Earlier in John, we'll end here, John 3, Nicodemus comes, and he's the scientist, he's the thinker. And he says to Jesus, we know, we know. We know a thing or two, we've seen a thing or two. We know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do the things that you're doing unless God is with him. That's human reason, okay? You're doing these wonderful things, God must be with you. And Jesus approaches him from an entirely different perspective. He says to him, in a sense, I could answer your question, but you couldn't see it, because unless a man is born again, he cannot see 
he cannot enter the kingdom of God. See, the problem is this morning, if you're not beginning with God, it's not because you lack information. It's because you lack the nature. You lack the will. You lack the love. You live in the darkness because you've turned away from the light, and you've turned away from the light because you hate the light, because the light exposes you. And your, your eyes are closed, your ears are shut, and your heart is hard, and you don't want to hear. And that's, even though Nicodemus can't quite get his arms around that fact, he's coming, he thinks he's looking for Jesus, but he's not. He's a dead soul in a dying body. And Christ says, I can't answer your question until you become a different person than you are. Unless a man is born again, he cannot see, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, and he can't see it because he won't see it. And because he won't see it, he can't see it. You've got to become a new person on the inside. That's the answer. The wisdom of God and the knowledge of God and the Word of God has got to become a creature of God to rescue the enemies of God by dying under the judgment of God for the glory of God, to redeem your soul from the curse of God. That's the message we're preaching this morning. That's the answer to America's confusion. We won't begin with God. We're too proud to have our children say, one nature under God. We wonder why our children grow up to say, I am God, and I give life, and I take life. Blessed be my name forever. We wonder where that comes from. And Jesus is here calling us back, calling us away from the darkness of a self-centered mind, whence there is no certainty, no rationality, no morality, no identity, no dignity, no liberty, no responsibility, only fantasy and anxiety. Wonder why our children are killing themselves at a record rate? Because they're bashing their souls against ultimate reality and saying it doesn't exist, and it's destroying them from the inside out. And Jesus is saying to you and me, look up and live. The voice that called Lazarus from the grave is calling you and I out of our spiritual death. Some maybe for the first time this morning, Christ is calling out to you. Look up and let me teach you to live, son or daughter of Adam or daughter of Eve. Let me teach you to think. Let me teach you to live. I've come that you might have life and have it in abundance. And maybe for most of us here who've already been born again, we come here and we live in a world of darkness where everything is the wrong side up and upside down. You spend five minutes watching the news, even Fox News. And it just, it's all dark and negative, and it just, there's no hope, and there's no God, and there's no Christ, there's no certainty. And we come in all topsy-turvy, and our lives look like chaos, cancers eating away at our minds, our bodies, who knows what, where else, and we just feel our, our health is failing, our lives are failing, America's failing, and there's no hope. And we come in here out of a world of darkness into a world of light, 
and Jesus puts the pieces back together again, makes everything the right size. We come in thinking men are big and God is small. Our troubles are big and God is small. And Jesus, the light of the world, makes everything the right size again. God is big. Everything else is small. And if I know Him, I have light. And if I have light, I have life. And if I have life, I have meaning and purpose and hope, not just in time, but in eternity. So come to Jesus and find knowledge and find wisdom and find life. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Jesus. Thank You, Father, for the help You give preaching Your Word, and pray, O Lord, that it might live in all of our hearts. For Christ's sake, we pray. O Lord, save people this morning as Your Word goes forth. Open their eyes against their will, renew their will, and make them ready and willing in the day of Your power. In Christ's name.